great song, great job sharing with us this morning. Thank you very much. At this time, I will dismiss any children to Children's Church. And Miss Amy's over there in the corner ready for the kids. It is a blessing to have each of you with us. I'm going to start this morning with an announcement, one that I, I would not normally make because it's actually two weeks away is what I'm announcing for. Um, but two weeks from today, I will be preaching in Costa Rica as a part of the mission trip that we'll be taking as a church. And so often when the pastor goes out of town, what happens is everybody says, well, we can take this week off. I'm going to tell you, you'd be disappointed if you do that. Uh, the individual who's going to be sharing that Sunday, which is July 23rd, is uh, an individual named Heath Mulliken. And Heath and I have been friends since we were in college, but actually when I pastored up in Pennsylvania, he came and served with me for a year. was an incredible blessing, did a great job. He's very gifted, even in the pulpit. He's gifted in all kinds of areas, but he eventually left us and ended up serving down here in South Carolina. Well, he is the one who contacted the district superintendent when this church was looking for a pastor and said, hey, you need to call Mike McClung. So here's the deal. If you appreciate me, you need to show up that day to say thank you to Pastor Heath. He is such a blessing and you will be blessed because of the fact that you're able to be here. So that'll be two weeks from today. Uh, so just something to look forward to. I've already mentioned it before, but thank you for your generosity in allowing us to be able to go on that mission trip. Uh, there is still money that is coming in toward that mission trip, even though we are already over the amount that was needed. And what that will do is allow us to just be an, an even bigger blessing to those who are there on a full-time basis. So Thank you for your generosity, and it is going to be a great trip. We're looking forward to it, and uh, it's great to be in the house of the Lord with you today. Thank you for joining us for our worship today. It is always a blessing when we're able to come together. In fact, that is exactly what I want to talk about uh, this morning. I want to start a new series today that is focused on what the church is supposed to be all about, because so often the church gets off into the weeds. We find ourselves talking about things that we don't need to talk about and we get distracted. At times the church has been perceived merely as an organization that just wants your money. Or for some, we are known for what we stand against. Or for others, we are about tradition or some self-help method. I would just say that there is some truth in all of these perspectives. Churches do depend on the generosity of their people. And the scriptures are clear about the things that are forbidden. Therefore, there are things that we are against. And there are certainly those who have found all kinds of freedom from various types of addiction and harmful self-perceptions. But the church is supposed to be about much more than that. The title of this series is A Community of Faith. And over the next several weeks, we will look at various scripture passages that deal with a healthy church. Ironically, all of the texts for today's sermon were written long before what has become known as the birthday of the church, Pentecost Sunday. But they address elements of the church that do matter. So let me begin here. If you don't know, the church is supposed to be a family. And that can be a good thing or a bad thing. Some of us have grown up in such dysfunctional families that the idea of the church being a family is a little bit concerning. 
Imagine how uncomfortable a person would be if they had an ungodly, abusive father, and the first thing they are introduced to in their faith journey is a heavenly father. That could be a little hard to comprehend. So, so when you say father, do you mean the, the guy who comes home and yells at us and gets drunk and beats the kids? Obviously, that's not what we're talking about. But there's no denying that our past family experiences can impact our perspective on things. Now, let me just say, I wrote that portion of the sermon on Monday. And then I read an article yesterday about a debate that is taking place within the Anglican church over whether it is acceptable to use the term heavenly father. But the motivation for that debate is not because of men who have been poor examples within the family, but because they are seeking to be politically correct. They want to include women, so please know that I have no desire to change our terminology to suit political correctness. In fact, I don't want to change our terminology at all, but I do recognize that there are some who have experienced bad fathers, so I can at least understand why that makes people uncomfortable. But the other side of that is that when a family operates the way it's supposed to, we find an intimacy and support that is incredibly uncommon in today's culture, but it is also very necessary. About a year ago, our church entered into an agreement with a company called Glue, that's spelled G-L-O-O. They have an app and they work on various platforms like Google. If an individual is looking up information online regarding anything related to depression or a family crisis or addiction recovery or death or church or just the meaning of life stuff, they are automatically redirected to a form that they can fill out online. That form is then forwarded to churches that are located within 25 miles of the individual. Our church is one of the few churches in this area that are participating in this. What this has done is it has opened up many doors for us to communicate with others who desperately need Jesus in the midst of their storms. But one thing that I tell each of the respondents is this, because what will happen is I get an email, and then I'm given their cell phone number, and I can text them back and forth to interact with them. One of the things that I tell each of the respondents is this. By experience, I have found that regardless of the struggle which you currently face, it is much easier to come through it on the other side when you have a church family that is walking alongside you. I'm going to repeat that because I think this is really important for us to hear. It's not just for them, but even for some who attend church every week, we need to be reminded of this. By experience, I have found that regardless of the struggle which you currently face, it is much easier to come through it on the other side when you have a church family that is walking alongside you. In the house that I grew up in, it was the church family that was there for us at every turn. When my wife and I lost a baby, it was the church family that prayed for us and was there to meet needs. When my kids go through teenage issues, 
It is the youth leaders who are already invested in their lives that are prepared to build them up, to hold them accountable, and to love on them in a healthy way. And I could go on and on about how important the church is in individuals' lives. The point is that regardless of the problems that you face, being a part of a healthy church can mean the difference between being defeated by your problems or being victorious over them. In fact, I would add that when the church is healthy, we should never have to go through anything alone unless we personally make the choice to be alone. A healthy family encourages one another. A healthy family financially supports one another. A healthy family serves alongside one another. A healthy family rejoices together. A healthy family grieves together. A healthy family will sometimes, and I hate to admit this, get on each other's nerves, but they will always find a way to work through those differences. And one other thing, a healthy church will always find a way to laugh. I was thinking yesterday about this. Yes, we all have to go through hard times, but even in difficulty, we can find a way to smile and to laugh. I heard a quote yesterday at our district conference from Oscar Wilde that said, the optimist sees the donut while the pessimist sees the hole. When we hurt, when things don't go as planned, it is really nice to have a church family that can laugh alongside us and help us to see more than just the problems in front of us. For years, my goal when I've made hospital visits is to at some point make people smile, to help people see more than their ailment, but instead to dwell on something good. And even within church ministry, y'all have no idea some of the things that we laugh at and how enjoyable it is to laugh. It's just because we'd rather see the bright side even in some of the more difficult things. I'm going to give you a few examples. Y'all know I've harassed Colby on multiple occasions about his uh, lack of height, um, but then also about the length of his preaching, which by the way, he has become one of the best preachers, I think, that the Wesleyan Church has. He has gone so far in the right direction. But there have been times I've heard people get up and speak, and I thought, oh, when is it going to stop? I was at a graduation one time, and I'm not exaggerating. The guy went for 45 minutes. He was the salutatorian, so he wasn't even the valedictorian. He went for 45 minutes. There were at least three occasions where he said, and finally, in the fourth time that he said it, the people began to cheer because he was only supposed to speak. He was asked afterwards. He said that he thought they said 45 minutes when they had asked him four or five minutes. That was a long message. I was at a funeral where I was the one who was supposed to speak, and they had a time for the family to be able to share. And one of the daughters of this lady who had passed away got up to share and share and share. I'm standing off to the side and I can see the funeral home directors off to the side where the other people can't see them. And I've got one of them with this watch out like that. And I just put my hands up. I can't do anything. And finally, one of the other daughters said, the food's getting cold, Alice. 
what do you do in a situation like that? You, you just laugh. You just deal with it. Um, we Actually, we did a funeral here at the church, and it was a very large funeral. There were probably about 300 people that had shown up. There was a local veterinarian that had died, and the family wanted to open it up for others to be able to share, but they wanted to keep it brief. So they asked me to find a way to limit how long people got up. So when I got ready to introduce the time of family sharing, I said, if, if I get up and just put my arm around you, that is the nice way of saying it is time for you to get down. Well, first four or five people that got up, they were great. And the next one that got up stayed up. And I stood up, and just as I was walking over to get him, he turned, he said, stop, don't put your arm around me. <laughs> he said, I'm wrapping up, I promise. <laughs> so what do you do? You just laugh at those kinds of things. I had a staff member who was supposed to speak on a Sunday night here at the church, but he thought service started at 7. We start at 6 o'clock on Sunday night. Oh, sorry, Jared, I didn't realize you were sitting there. It was... <laughs> <laughs> All of these things could keep us from enjoying ministry, or we could find a way to laugh at those things. I suggest to you that all of these things I've mentioned ought to be a part of the life of a church. And I could probably do a sermon on each of those things, but that's not where I want to focus today. The most important thing that a family will do is to point one another to Jesus Christ. And I'm going to use three verses to clearly communicate this, but we'll take a deeper look into two of these verses. First, let me share from Joshua chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. But it may take a few minutes for me to set this up for you. First, realize that the Israelites... The Israelites had waited 40 plus years to be able to enter into the promised land. They've wandered around a desert with no place to call home. And finally, the promise of God is being fulfilled. You don't have to turn to all the other chapters that I'm going to reference here. But in Joshua chapter 2 and 3, we see God setting the stage for what we're looking at in Joshua 4. God is miraculously providing for his people. In Joshua 2, the people are told by Joshua to get their things in order. For in three days you will cross over into the land that God had sworn to give to your ancestors. And in chapter 3, God instructs the people to consecrate yourselves. For the Lord is about to do amazing things among you. That's Joshua 3, 5. Well, God absolutely does not disappoint while the Jordan River is at flood stage, God would suddenly dry up the river so that the entire army could cross over to the other side. It sounds similar to God's parting of the Red Sea as he had done for Moses 40 plus years earlier. But this time it seems a bit different. In the Red Sea experience, you picture a magical separation of the waters on both sides. So Moses holds out his staff and the waters excuse me, just begin to part and a walkway forms. Moses really hasn't done a whole lot, but as he holds that, stand, that staff out, God does something great. 
with Joshua and the Jordan River, we're told that God would cause the water, instead of parting like that, God would simply cause the water from upstream to suddenly be cut off. But it was more than just cutting off the water. It actually said that the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant stood on dry ground in the middle of this river as everyone else passed by, which when you think about it, that's pretty significant. Y'all remember just a couple weeks ago when it seemed as if it would never stop raining here. It took days for the mud in my yard to dry up afterwards. But in the Israelites' case, it's almost as if God has sent a mighty wind to completely dry up the mud. Listen to Joshua 4, verses 2 and 3 for a moment. It said, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests are standing, and carry them over with you, and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. In other words, as you cross through this dry riverbed that should not be dry, God wants them to grab some stones. And my guess is that this would have maybe even turned into some type of competitive thing among these men. I picture each one trying to make sure that they had the biggest stone. You had 12 men, one from each of the tribes of Israel. And I picture someone from the tribe of Dan picking up a stone and thinking to himself, that's a pretty good stone. And then someone from the tribe of Levi gets a bigger stone. And maybe the other people from the tribe of Dan are like, hey, you can't let him get a bigger stone than you. And what you end up with is these huge stones that are being carried across. The purpose of these stones is that they would make them into a memorial. They would set them up together almost as a lingering testimony that this was the place where God literally parted the water for us. And I will say that this memorial would have served to remind at least three groups of people of what God had done. Among the enemies of God, Every time they saw this stone memorial, they would be reminded that the God of the Israelites is more powerful than anything we could ever imagine. Can you imagine them trying to stand against the God of the Israelites? Among the Israelites themselves, they would need to be reminded that what seems impossible for God is absolutely nothing to God. Isn't it crazy? that all of us need to be reminded of that so often. God has provided over and over again for us, yet we still get so scared the moment anything happens. And then we remember that time where God dried up the river for us. He took us through cancer. He restored our marriage. He gave us the financial resources that we needed. He rescued our children. If he can dry up the river, then surely he can deliver us today. But there's a third group of people who will benefit from this 12-stone memorial that is set up. And I'm talking about the next generation. I'm talking about children. Listen to Joshua 4, verse 6 and 7. This is actually our text for this morning. In the future, when your children ask you, What do these stones mean? 
Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. And these stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. A similar text is communicated in Joel chapter 1, verse 3, which says, Tell it to your children, and let your children tell it to their children, and their children to the next generation. There are tons of similar verses throughout the scriptures that echo this important calling. For example, I think of Exodus 12, verse 26 to 27, or Exodus 13, verse 8, or verse 14 of that same chapter, all of which are dealing with the Lord's deliverance from Egypt and the Passover celebration. Share with your children. Tell them what God has done. But I want to use these verses from Joshua chapter 4 as a model for us this morning. The first thing that I want us to see today is that we must invest in our children. The passage says that when your children ask you, now within that phrase is the assumption that they will ask you. There's the assumption that you will give them the opportunity for this question. It's almost like what we read in Deuteronomy eleven nineteen, where we're told that you shall teach them to your children talking of them when you are sitting in your house and when you are walking by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Can you picture a dad and his son out for a walk and the son sees this giant pile of rocks? Suddenly the son says, well, I wonder how these got here. Well, son, let me tell you what God did. This is why those stones are there. But in order for the father to be able to do that, he must first create the opportunity by intentionally investing in the life of his child. And I tell you that a healthy church is always going to be one that is investing in the lives of children. In our case, two of our paid staff are specifically devoted to youth and children's ministry. We have others who oversee our nursery age kids, as well as our toddlers. In addition, you have countless volunteers who give of themselves constantly to make sure that those ministries are run effectively. Thousands of dollars are spent on children's and youth ministries each year at this church, but it's because we are doing more than providing a babysitting service. Man, it's great to say that we've got a children's ministry, but what's the purpose of it? We are investing in the people whom God has entrusted to us. We are investing in both the present and the future generation because the future of the church is dependent on what the church does. And because we do that, it opens up doors to address even more important things we get to introduce them to Jesus Christ. Now, we do that in many different ways. But according to this passage, one of the first things that we ought to do with our kids is to tell them our story. You know, I've heard many people from my own generation as well as the generation before and even after me. I hate to admit this, but I am at least two generations away from our youth. The fact is, we're all getting a little bit older. 
but I hear people from these older generations, including myself, and we talk about the lack of respect among those who are coming up after us, the lack of discipline. We talk about a lack of good work ethic and responsibility. I walked into an auto parts store this week and was greeted by a young employee who was complaining that his boss actually expected him to show up on time to work. Go figure. Man, it's, it's hard to imagine the pressure that these guys are on. Maybe the greatest concern for the next generation is not their work ethic. It may not be their discipline. It may not be their responsibility or even their respect. Maybe the greatest issue for the next generation is their faith. I've heard too many parents who have said, well, I want my kids to make up their own decision regarding faith. I don't want to force Christianity upon them. Let me just say, I appreciate your gentleness in sharing your faith with your kids. But can I just say, and I want to say this in the nicest way possible, that is the dumbest thing I have ever heard in my life. You say that you want them to make up their own minds. You don't want them to to have anything forced upon them. But I assure you, that there are plenty of others who will force things upon your children. Would you rather have your Christian faith forced upon them instead of having some school counselor or even their friends forcing their opinions upon your kids? Whether you realize it or not, it's going to happen. I will tell you that one of the best things that my mom ever did for me was to make sure that I was in church. I can't say that I always wanted to be there, but I didn't have a choice. If the doors of the church were open, I was going to be there. And I feel very confident that had my mom not forced Christianity upon me, then I would not be standing before you today as a pastor. It is past time for today's parents to pass on our faith to the next generation of young people. But passing on our faith to the next generation is about a lot more than just making our kids go to church. We must be willing to tell our story. How has the Lord moved in your life? Where have you seen the Lord's hand at work? whether through miracles or simply through grace? When did you respond to God's offer of grace? Why did you respond? What has your faith journey been like? My question to you is, do your kids even know that story? We want a generation of young people who are hungry for the Lord, but they haven't seen that from the previous generation or two or even three. I know that, first of all, let me just say, I am a long way from where I need to be as a dad. And I know that I am a preacher, which means I talk a lot. But I also know that my kids have heard me tell my story many times. They know that in the first week of August 1990, I was at a youth camp in Roanoke, Virginia, right off Interstate 81. 
when I knelt at an altar and surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. You know why they know that? Because every time we drive by that exit, my kids hear the same story. And I have no apology for that. I want my kids to know my story. They know that I went to school to be an accountant. But somewhere along the way, God grabbed a hold of my heart and he changed my direction. And I ended up becoming a pastor. They know it because they've heard it over and over again. Here's a beautiful thing. Although they are all three still works in progress, all three of my children now have a story of their own. I'm going to tell you that until your story becomes real to your children, it is unlikely that they will be interested in establishing a story of their own. Now, there are exceptions to that. There are individuals who often it is the child that leads the parents back to the Lord. And what a great thing when that takes place. But if you want your young people, the people who are part of your life, to have a story of their own, it must begin with you having a story of your own that you are willing to share with them. I know that we're supposed to be talking about a healthy church and what that looks like. And here I am, instead, I've moved to talking just about healthy families. Let me say that a healthy church is always made up of healthy families. And on the other side of that, a healthy church will always help families to become even healthier. It is a cycle that they will feed off of each other. But the other side of this is that sharing your story is just important to the life of a church, just as important to the life of a church as it is within your family. Not long ago, Pastor Lee did a series with each of the youth sponsors being asked to share their story with the youth group. And in that series, the kids heard of people who found forgiveness, fulfillment, and purpose from a relationship with Jesus Christ. But this isn't just for the youth or the children either. Last Sunday, you got to witness people who were being baptized. And in their baptism, there is a declaration that I was once a sinner, but Jesus Christ has forgiven me and I seek to live for him for the rest of my life. That is such a powerful story to tell. And as with my children, I pray that as people see and hear our stories being shared, that they will respond by experiencing their own story. Let me share one more reference from the book of Joshua for a moment. Immediately after crossing the Jordan, the Israelites don't immediately go out and start wiping out these enemy nations. Instead, they do something that was incredibly odd, to say the least. You see, prior to their 40-year journey, it was the practice of all Israelite boys to be circumcised. This was a unique act that no other people group would do. In a manner, it served as a symbol of them being set apart as an act of obedience to God's instruction. But it also was a healthy thing. 
as it legitimately would limit infections that might occur as adults. But that's not what I want to talk to you about here. As they journeyed, they stopped the act of circumcision. And what that means is that they entered into this promised land. As they entered in, a whole generation of people knew of God. They have benefited from his blessing as he's just parted the waters of the Jordan. And now they're about to face many great enemies. But the truth is that this generation of God's people are still living on the previous generation's declaration of faith. That previous generation made sure that that symbol of circumcision was done, but this generation had not. Their parents had a story, a symbol of their faith. But this younger generation was riding mom and dad's coattails of faith. As they entered into the promised land, the first thing that they do is to have every adult male circumcised. Now, there's a lot more to this, and I could do a whole sermon just on this act of circumcision. But I want you to consider what they're actually doing in this act. They're declaring that it is no longer just my mom and dad's faith that sets me apart. This is my faith. They are declaring that from this moment forward, I am not telling their story, but rather I am telling my story. They are taking ownership of their faith. I fear that there are many in the church who we have told their story, partially because we don't have a story of our own. We talk about the faith of the church, and so often we talk about the good old days of the church when God showed up and he did miraculous things. And I'll tell you, this story is a, is, this church has a story that is full of great stories. The heritage in this church is incredible. But do you know that God wants you to have your own personal story as well? God wants you to be able to declare that I am a child of God, that I made a decision on this day that I would no longer live just for myself, that God would forgive me because he promised that he would, and I will live for him every day moving forward. Now, here's the thing. Your story, if it's just what happened 30, 40, 50 years ago, there's still something wrong because your story should still be being written. Some of us, we're talking about maybe it was our story, but it was so far back, we don't even remember the details. There are times I have people that, okay, so sometimes it's me. Sometimes I'll tell a story about when I was in high school, and afterwards I think I'm not even sure it happened that way. But I tell the details as if I'm 100% certain that that's the way it happened. The reason is because I'm so far removed from it, I can't remember all the details. Wouldn't it be better if we had a story that not only began 30, 40, 50 years ago, but was still being written today so I could tell those details and know that they're right because it's the same story that's still happening right now. I'm going to tell you, every one of us needs a story. And we need to be able to pass it on to the next generation because that story, their generation, they will need their own story. Maybe it's time for some of us to take ownership of our story by simply going back to the Lord and saying, Lord, I'm yours. Forgive me. 
start the new story in me. If you would, bow your heads with me. Father, as we come before you today, well, first of all, we are grateful for those who have been a part of our story. Family members, loved ones, friends, neighbors, whoever they were, individuals who lived it out in front of us and showed us a story that was alive and real and had transformed their lives. Thank you for the miraculous ways that you had worked in them to transform those people. Lord, I pray today that you would allow us to have our own story. Right now, Lord, I pray that you would pour out your spirit on your people that you would forgive us of our sins, that you would cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I pray that even those among us who maybe they've got a story that began a long time ago, Lord, I pray that you'd write a new chapter today. Lord, I pray that you would be with the generation that comes along behind us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to share our story with them so that they too might see the need for their own personal story. Father, I take a moment here and I just pray for our kids. I pray for my kids. I pray that you would keep their story fresh and anew. But I thank you for the salvation that they celebrate today. But I pray that you would help them every single day to grow to be more and more like you. There are some parents in here right now that as I share they're brokenhearted because they don't even know that their kids have a story. But I pray right now that you would begin a story within them. I pray that there would be a heart of repentance. Lord, I pray that you would open up doors to be able to share the gospel with them. And I pray that maybe even in these parents' lives, that you would give them the opportunity to share their story with their kids. But we look forward to seeing lives changed through your people, through the church. Be with us as a church. Help us to continually share the story that is alive and is real. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to just sense your presence as we do it. May you be honored as we go from this place, and we'll give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to look at different aspects of the church in the coming weeks. Uh, again, the title of this series is A Community of Faith but it begins with the family. So make sure your family is what it ought to be. Thank you for being with us this morning and go in peace.